0: Want to share? Uh, a, you're fine. Uh, I want to share a prayer concern before we get into prayer. That's kind of why we're not just opening with prayer as I was as I normally been doing. Um, and uh, some of you have already seen the the notification come through on the app. Um, we found out after church uh, this afternoon uh, that Jean Hudson went home to be with the Lord this morning, and so early this morning uh, she passed away at home. And, uh, she was, uh, some of you guys know, she was in the hospital for a little bit. Um, she had some different health concerns for the last, well, about a good year and a half or so. Uh, this summer had some heart issues. Uh, and then here just recently, she ended up, um, having COVID, uh, and was in for a while trying to recover from that. Then she went to a rehab facility at the hospital in Cairo, uh, was there for a little while and then went home, uh, here recently, and uh, again, passed away early this morning uh, in her her bedroom, and so uh, went to sleep and just never woke up. And so uh, we are praying for the family. Um, her many of you guys know she has uh, two sisters, I believe, that are from in Alaska. Uh, one was coming home or coming to this area on Tuesday just to help her. And take care of her and all that, so she's already on her way, and then I believe talking to a family member today, the other uh, is going to be here, they thought maybe even today. and so uh, we'll let you know obviously when funeral arrangements get made and all of that, um, and so we'll be praying for the family and just for her passing, but obviously we rejoice in the Lord in that she knew the Lord and uh, she is at rest, and she has been healed completely, and so we continue to lift her up in, or her family up in prayer. but let's pray. And then we'll ask the Lord to be with our time this evening. Father, we do come before you this evening, Lord, and we're so thankful for an opportunity to gather. And Lord, as we think about Jean Hudson's home going this morning, that she left this world and entered your shores, and Lord, she is with you, and she is at rest in the Lord, and she's entered into the joy of the Lord. And Father, we know that she had a guarantee of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, and so we're, thankful, we're so thankful for that, Lord, and... But Lord also we're we're very aware um to how short life really can be. And Lord I know she's had a great long fruitful life. Uh, but Lord uh, there's no guarantee of tomorrow for anyone in this room. Uh, Lord any one of us if it's in agreement with your will could go to bed tonight and never wake up. And then when we do wake up it won't be this side of heaven. It'll be that side of heaven and Lord uh, we look forward to that day and in, in some regards, Lord, obviously we want to be with you. We want to be in your presence, but Lord, we know that it's tough for those that are left behind. And uh, so, Father, we do pray for Jean's family. We pray for her loved ones, those that are traveling in. Lord, we pray that you'd help our church to be a blessing in any way we can to come alongside them and minister your grace and comfort to them and uh, words of encouragement. But Lord, ultimately, just even the gospel that would go forth. Um, Lord, at the funeral service. And so, Lord, while we do lift those things up, Lord, we also ask that you would help us to truly value every single moment, every breath you give us in our lungs, that we would appreciate and value this life that you've given us, Lord, because every day is a gift and a blessing. And Lord, so many times we, if we're being honest, we're so wasteful of our time. We're wasteful of opportunities that you give us, Lord, and we look back and we can look, look back on our, our days or our weeks or our months, and we can just identify times that we really allowed opportunities to glorify you, opportunities to serve you, to slip through the cracks. And Lord, I pray that every time that we hear of someone that we know uh, passing and going home to, to be with you, we, I pray that it'd be a, a moment of evaluation, a moment of a self-check to just remind ourselves of the... Truly, Lord, the shortness of this life, that that we appear for a short time and then vanish away. And I pray that we would be aware of that, thankful for every moment, thankful for every friendship, family member that we have, that we can spend time with them, Lord, that we would treasure every moment and truly live life to its fullest, not just when we hear about someone passing that it makes us think these things, but every day that we would desire to strive to live this way. And Father, again, we thank you for your grace and your love in our lives. Thank you for this morning. Uh, what a blessing it is to gather with your church, uh, to see so many here, Lord, uh, visitors uh, here, return visitors, uh, Lord, from previous weeks. Uh, just what a blessing. And, Father, obviously, we, we lift up and we praise you for a generous church uh, that would go above and beyond in sharing just a, an amazing gift of generosity with Pastor Greg and myself. And, and, Lord, we're just so thankful for the opportunity to serve here and to glorify you. Father, we love you. And be with us now as we go through the rest of the service. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, as I said in the prayer there, thank you so much to any of you that were a part of that this morning as far as the uh, pastoral appreciation gift. Um, you know, I don't know why I'm always surprised in a way of positive, uh, but I was definitely overwhelmed. And Sandra and I, and I'm, i can sure I can speak for Pastor Greg, are very thankful for your generosity. So thank you for that. So tonight, uh, we're going to hand out the, the scripture in just a second. And... Uh, You'll get there. Would you relax? Oh, my. He is just like, I want a clipboard. Um, they're not going to disappear. There's plenty. You're fine. Um, so tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. So we went through quite a few Psalms and, uh, various ones and whatnot. And I kind of mentioned that we may not stay in Psalms. We may kind of move to some other passages. Um, I don't have another book per se in mind, so what we're going to do is I'm just going to kind of, as the Lord leads, um, tonight we're just going to look at a passage that is, uh, contains a verse that's relatively popular, uh, but we're going to look at a larger portion in the context and in that passage to kind of understand what's going on there and how that verse that gets used a lot today uh, maybe was intended to be originally interpreted and who it was interpreted or given to, and so we want to do that tonight. So I'm going to hand out a portion of Jeremiah chapter 29. There's only going to be 10 verses to this chapter. Obviously, there's much more verses in the whole chapter, but we're just going to look at 10 verses, which I believe will give us a good amount of context for what we're going to do this evening. All right, so I'm going to hand this out, and then we will let you guys get clipboards if you need clipboards. So, Josiah, if you do need a clipboard, you can go ahead and get one. They're up there. Um, Anyone else need a clipboard? Evan's going to get one. All right. If anyone else needs one maybe gentlemen can you guys get somebody else one if they need it please I said gentlemen they're like who who are you talking to Oh yeah I was going to just walk around Did you get one Yeah I was going to come around and do it but Person gets one. Oh, we have to share. <laughs> I do not. Thank you, sir. There you go. There you go. All right. We also have pens. If anyone would need a pen, does anyone need a pen to write with? Okay. Hopefully that one works. Anyone else need a pen? Anyone else? I put the cap on. All right. So, uh, as we've been doing, as we've gone through Psalms up to this point... Um, What we're going to do is uh, you have, again, uh, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14 in front of you. And so what we want to do is we want to give you guys an opportunity to go ahead and and work through that text. Um, So we should have, we'll have a little music maybe. We have a little music going. Okay, great. Um, so uh, like we've been doing with Psalm, uh, Psalms rather, we'll give you some time, probably about 10 minutes or so um, to go ahead. And again, if you're not done this with our Psalms, when we did that for quite a few weeks, um, what we're doing is we're making observations. So as you read through the passage, make observations about who's speaking to who, locations, uh, different names, if there's names referenced to God, if you can identify where God is speaking, where others are speaking, different groups. You're just making a lot of observations there. And so what we'll do is we'll give you about 10 minutes to work through the text, make some notes, make some observations. If you're familiar with this passage or this chapter, you might even add some of your own thoughts from previous studies in here. Um, and then what we'll do after 10 minutes is we'll just break down the passage together and see where the Lord leads. And so go ahead and and start on that. And then, like I said, we'll give you about 10 minutes and come back and talk about it. I thought I gave TJ enough time. I guess not. You guys, kind of finish that. If you're finishing a sentence or a thought, go ahead and do that. And then we'll wanna we'll read this together, and then uh, start breaking it apart. So, if I can get somebody to volunteer to read uh, the handout, there, read the whole. Uh, I think it's ten verses. Uh, that would be great. Who'd like to do that for us to kind of get us get us going? Like to read the passage for us. Who'd like to do that? You know, Austin, I had a rule when I did youth ministry that if anybody pointed at someone else, I'd make them do it. So, now, you didn't know the rule. You didn't know the rule, so I won't, I'm not even going to do that. But just so you know, next time, I'm watching. I'm watching. Okay? Who would like to read that for us? No, oh, Danielle, go ahead. She she had her hand raised. I didn't see it. It was down here. I got to go high. Go ahead and read that for us, Danielle. All right. Thank you. So quick observation. Uh, one of the things I like to do is look at not just the individual verses, but if there is a structure or a kind of a feel to the way the verses actually are formatted. And so just as you're looking at that, maybe some of you caught this. Uh, what do you notice about the structure of the passage? I mean, the actual grouping of the, the verses, does anything jump out to you and how those verses are structured? Anyone catch that or see that as far as when you were looking at it? Go ahead, Sandra. Right. So in just these 10 verses that we chose, and again, we're not doing all of Jeremiah 29 for time's sake, but you see three times or maybe three rounds of this. There's, and I didn't know what else to call it. I just put introduction or intro, like next to verse four, I put intro. Verses 5 through 7, we see the Lord speaking. Then in verse 8, we see another kind of introduction that the Lord's going to speak again. Then verses 9 through, or I'm sorry, yeah, verse 9. And yeah, verse 9, he speaks, right? Then verse 10, we see another intro. And then 11, through 14, we see him speaking. So you see that kind of that structure of the passage. This is what the Lord's going to say, and the Lord says it. The Lord is going to say, and then the Lord says it. So we see that structure even developing through this way that Jeremiah communicated this prophecy. Uh, Also, what do we know? Because now we're in a different book. Okay, so we're not in Psalms anymore. In Psalms, what kind of book is Psalms? How would we describe that in our groupings of Bible books? If you're on Wednesday night, this is really familiar to you. Poetry, right? So poetry is still scripture. Okay, that's just the literary style it was written in. But here we don't, this is not poetry. Now it reads sometimes with a lot of descriptive wording and illustrative wording and all of that because it's a certain kind of literature. What kind of literature is Jeremiah? Yeah, it's prophecy, and he specifically is a major prophet, right? Remember, there's five major prophets in the Old Testament, and Jeremiah is one of those five, okay? Uh, Has anyone heard of what Jeremiah is referred to as? He's the this prophet, the weeping prophet. Why is he called the weeping prophet? Because he just walked around crying all the time? He just cried a lot, cried a lot? Okay. Yeah. What caused him to weep for Jerusalem or for the Israelites? If we're going to get specific about the people, what caused him to weep for them? Okay. Their sin. Okay. They didn't believe his prophecy. So that would grieve his heart. What kind of prophecy was he prophesying? Not even destruction. Captivity. Captivity. Right? You're going to be led captive. And so Jeremiah is hearing that. Guess what? Jeremiah doesn't find that good news either. He's not rejoicing in their potential captivity and what ends up happening as they're led captive. So I believe he wept for the city. He wept for the sin. He wept for their disobedience. But I also think he wept because he didn't necessarily maybe like where this was going. Maybe he wept because he was heartbroken at the way that God's people were treating the father. He wept because his own people have to go through this, right? He's not rejoicing in their judgments. He's heartbroken over this. And so if you want to make a note, to me, the weeping prophet Jeremiah, the reason I believe that this this prophet acts this way and responds this way is because it's a greater picture of the book itself. The weeping prophet represents, I believe, the weeping father, okay? Okay. So you got Jeremiah the weeping prophet, but if you read Jeremiah, it's actually the father, I believe, is heartbroken, is weeping. So, Jeremiah chapter 2. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2. I'll give you an example of this, because I'm not going to go too deep into this, but I want to show you an example of this. And I believe this sets up the whole book of Jeremiah. All right? So, Jeremiah chapter 2, and we're just going to look at verse 5. Okay, we'll start in verse 5. I'll just read... Maybe a couple of verses here. All right, so Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? Then he goes through and talks about in verse 7 And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof, and the goodness thereof. And when ye entered in, ye defiled my land, and made mine heritage an abomination. Verse 9, wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. What is God's heart here? When you read that, what comes to mind as far as God speaking to the children of Israel? What, What comes to your mind? What's on God's heart right here? Okay, yeah. They're running away from his goodness, right? He talked about that, his provision. I brought you into this land that is plentiful, and you defiled it. I did this, and you walked away. And I love that phrase, I will plead with you and your children's children. Now, he doesn't literally mean after that generation we're done, right? Because he's pleading with us today to come to receive Christ, right? By the work of the Spirit. But that pleading, what does Paul say in the New Testament? I beseech you. Right? I, I beg you, I plead with you, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or your act of worship. It makes sense to do this. Why? Because of the mercies of God. Why did Jeremiah weep? Because God wept for Israel. Now, I'm not saying literal tears. I'm saying the heartbroken nature that Jeremiah experienced and exhibited, I think was impressed upon him by the Spirit because that's what God was feeling. That's what God was dealing with. And so when you read this, we need to understand that Jeremiah is dealing with quite a lot of emotion and different things that he's experiencing as well. So let's jump into the handout. The first thing we notice, and if you're taking notes, they're off to the side even more so, verse 4, we set the stage with what's going on in this passage. So again, this is written by Jeremiah to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. To the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Babylon. The people of God disobeyed God's commands countless times and refused to repent. So God, as the verse says, and this is something we need to kind of get our minds around. Verse 4, there's a key word there. At the end of that verse, it says, Whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. God caused the captivity. So that means God didn't just let this happen. God created the situation, led the Babylonians to do it, created everything needed so that this would take place. God willed this captivity. This is God's plan that Israel would be captured, that they would be imprisoned in bondage. Now, in Babylon, as best we can tell, they had basically normal-ish lives, okay? It's not like Egypt where they were slaves making bricks. They really are able to live mostly a normal life. We do know as time goes on, like any other people group in a displaced land, they're not seen with a lot of favor at times. They're outcast in some ways. They don't fit in. But the Babylonian culture had a way of kind of bringing in different cultures. And we'll learn a little of yours and we'll give you a lot of ours, right? What happened with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Junior Church covered this this morning, right, with the fiery furnace. What happened to them when they got to captivity? What were they made to do or had to do? What happened to Daniel, the three Hebrews and Daniel? What did they have to do when they got to captivity? What's that? Yeah, they were tempted or asked to worship the image, right? But that they rejected. But there was a lot of things they did that they were fine with. Daniel said, we won't eat the king's meat. That's the one thing, and we won't worship the image. But remember the passage from Daniel? They were all with taking new names. They learn their language, they learn their sciences, they learn their academics, right? Daniel's not even Daniel, right? According to them, he has a whole different name. So when you think about that, and by the way, the names they gave them, the name Bel, like, for example, like the king Belteshazzar, Bel is a deity of the Babylonians. This is an idol. So they would invoke the name of an idol in their names when they were given names. Daniel took that name and did not fight it. He didn't say, no, you can't call me that because that's the name of an idol. We don't see anywhere where Daniel rejected that. He said, I won't defile myself at the king's meat. I won't put in my mouth and break the law of God. But we know Daniel never worshipped any idols. But he was willing to adapt some of the culture of the Babylonians because... As we've been, again, reading in a book on Hudson Taylor, who was really one of the first missionaries to actually go into a land and say, I'm going to dress like the people. I'm going to cut my hair like the people I'm ministering to. I'm going to learn the language of the people I'm working with. I'm going to live like them. And he was looked down upon by other European missionaries because he wore Chinese apparel, because he cut his hair like somebody that was Chinese. And they were like, you're just foolish. What are you doing? But as we've been reading in this book as a staff over the last so many weeks, he had such great impacts because he could walk through a village and if people weren't really paying that close of attention, he would walk right through with no issues. He wasn't looked at as a foreigner. And the longer he was there and did that, the more people began to welcome him into their homes, welcome them into their villages. It was a long, hard road. But you can see how this, again, began to become a normal thing that he did. And so, again, when you understand that these individuals went into Babylon, they lived a pretty much normal life, but they're still not in their land. They're still technically in captivity. They can't just go home. And everything familiar has been taken away. And God caused that to happen. And so often we take God and we bring him way down here and we try to, you know, kind of play PR for God. Well, yeah, God did that, but he didn't really want that to happen. I mean, he really wasn't trying for that to happen. Like we try to make God appeal better or do a little PR for God. No, the Bible says he caused it to happen. He didn't just let it happen. It was his will and it was his plan. And we have to note that based on what some, but some people do with one of the verses in this passage, because if you understand verse 4, then verse 11 will never mean what people in our day and age have made it to mean. It can't, because God would be contradicting himself. But here we see this is the case. God is sending them into captivity. And so the rest of the passage, God is going to give them a word of comfort and commission. So if you want to jet out there to the side of verses 4 and 5 somewhere, the rest of the passage is going to be words of comfort and a word of commission. Now, what do I mean by that? Comfort. He's going to show them how he will comfort them through the land and how he's going to comfort them after. But he also gives them a word of commission and gives them what to do, kind of their their orders while they're in the land. So verses five through seven, the only way I could jot this or title this would be make yourself at home. Make yourself at home. That's really what God is saying in verses five through seven. So again, build ye houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. That would be, you know, not a good thing if you're not a good gardener, because you're like, I planted a garden. I've got no fruit. Verse six, Take wives, begot sons and daughters. So have children, have a normal life. Get married, have children. Give your children away in marriage. So what's he saying here? These are not commands, right? You have to get married and you have to give your children to marriage and so on. It's saying live a normal life. Just put down roots and make yourself at home. Verse 7, and seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away. There's that phrase again. I've caused you to be carried away captives and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall you have peace. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But basically God is telling them it is going to be a long time that they will dwell in Babylon. So put down roots and prepare to be there a while. This is not a short stay. Now this is, again, seems kind of obvious, right? That they're going to be there a while, but we're going to unpack a little bit that that's not what they were hearing from people in their uh, in their religious communities. That's not what they were hearing from other people. So that's, again, why Jeremiah has to clarify this and say, this is what the Lord actually said. Now, verse 7, we see an interesting phrase. It says, seek the peace of this city. And then it actually tells them to pray for it. And then it says, for in the peace thereof shall you have peace. So it's just your opinion, why do you think Jeremiah, on behalf of the Lord, why is the Lord saying, seek the peace of of the city and to pray for it. Why do you think he's telling them that? What is that what does that mean when you hear that seek the peace of the city, pray for it, and those that seek peace will have peace. Okay. I see what you're saying. So pray for peaceful Encounters with other people rather than violent encounters. Okay, I could see that. Sandra? Um, maybe it was protective of, like, actually, the city was protective of, of them because they were already taken to the city. They were already, well, now it's an established place and it's got protective and it's the city would have. Okay. So, oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So basically by being in the city of Babylon, you have the protection of the city. And even though you're not really wanting to be there, you actually have peace because you have the protection of the Babylonians to keep you safe from other enemies or other that's a great point, yeah, Julie. So there won't be I thought of, not no war. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, pray for just general peace, that there'll be an end of war, right? Absolutely, yeah. Because the Israelites either will be left defenseless or they may get, you know, brought into battle. Now, guess what? You're fighting now because you're with us. You're in the city, okay? Okay. Yeah, so you don't like to be in captivity. I mean, right? You don't really want to plant roots. You don't want to marry here. You don't want to buy a house here. You don't want to plant a garden here. I don't want to be here. I want to be home. And God saying, no, no, go ahead and put down roots. And as that's going to cause some tension, right? Some uneasiness, we'll pray for peace. It's not where you want to be, but this is where God's got you. So you might as well be at peace while you're there. Okay. It's a great point. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Yeah. So, and I think that's kind of a, that's a really good point to kind of pull in here. And I think it kind of ties in a little bit with what like Aaron was saying, but I also hear a little bit of the new Testament where we're called to pray for our leaders, right? We're called to pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, pray for our Kings. Why should I pray for them? So that we'll all bless be blessed, right? If our leaders are doing the right things, making the right decisions and leading the right way, it's going to have an effect on the rest of the the country, right? So if my leader is making wise decisions and we're not just running headlong into a situation we shouldn't be running into, I'm going to have peace because things are at rest, okay? We're going to prosper. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean financially, right? What did he say? Do these things. Build a house or buy a house or plant gardens. There's going to be successful living, right? It's going to be fruitful, There's going to be blessings in the city, in the land. So absolutely, I think it ties into that. We're praying for peace, not only that we would be at peace in the city, but we're praying for the city. We're praying for these Babylonians. We're praying for the leaders. We're praying for God to provide for the city. And as a byproduct, they will be blessed. And as well, the the Babylonians will see God in that. So great. That's exactly where I was thinking. Um, Moving on, I want to also point out, Uh, That the Babylonians themselves, or the Israelites themselves, living among the Babylonians, need to pray for peace in how they interact with the Babylonians. Uh, And I love the verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Live peaceably with all men. Live peaceably with all men. I love the end of the verse there. For in the peace thereof you shall have peace. And I kind of look at that as that when I try to live at peace with those around me, right, those in my community, again, they're outsiders, There may be tensions. There may be some things going on here. So live at peace with all men. So I want to live peacefully. I don't want to cause division and and, and issues or conflicts that aren't needed. I'm going to live at peace. And so that verse from Romans 12 is what came to my mind when I was thinking about when it says that if you have peace, you'll live in peace. And so, again, kind of the idea here is that those who seek peace will have peace. Right? Those who seek peace will have peace, no matter the circumstances. Because when things change, and I've prayed for peace and contentment, as what Aaron kind of alluded to, then I can be at peace in this situation, even though things around me aren't great. Right? Moving into verses 8 and 9. So we see this is God speaking, right? 5 through 7 is God speaking very clearly. He's going to do these things. He's caused these things to happen. Verse 8 Right? We understand this is another little kind of introduction to the next section. For thus saith the Lord of hosts. And so again, we see that phrase, Lord of hosts, uh, Lord of the heavens. Right? This idea of the heavenly host. Uh, he is Lord of all. So thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Repetition from verse 4. And will be repeated again. Uh, at least that, for thus saith the Lord in verse 10. But verse 8, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye caused to dream. Verse 9. For they prophesy falsely unto unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. So you should circle some words in verse 8. Your prophets, so circle your there, your diviners. We see a distinction now. Jeremiah is a prophet of God, speaking on behalf of God, but God is making a distinction. There's Jeremiah's prophecy, and then there's your prophets. He doesn't say they're my prophets that are just getting it wrong. They're my prophets that are misleading you. He says, no, those are your prophets. They're not my prophets. And I love that Jeremiah makes a distinction here. Uh, The way I titled this section in verses 8 through 9 is simply, they desired false good news. So the people desired false good news over hard but comforting news. So the people desired false good news over hard but comforting news. Yes, Sandra. Yes. No, my understanding would be this is referring to those, and we'll explain why in a minute, why there's those that are among the Israelites that are prophesying falsely. OK, so here we see the Israelites are being told that it wasn't good or wasn't going rather to be that bad. That's kind of the prophecy they're hearing. These ones that are saying falsely what's going to happen. They would be home in no time is one of the examples of what they were hearing. And we'll talk about that in a second, because that sounded better. What sounds better? 70 years or you'll be home in no time. Humanly speaking, we want the no time. I don't want 70 years. But what did God clearly make known? He's going to say it again, that it's actually going to be 70 years. But in verse 4, he says, I've caused you to go away in the captivity. You're going to be there a long while. So because the false good news sounded better than the hard news, they chose the false good news. And this is what uh, takes place, actually, if you want to jot down, in Jeremiah 28. In Jeremiah 28, a false prophet named Hananiah told the exiles they would be home in two years. In two years, they would be home. And Jeremiah, actually in 28, calls him out. You see, Hananiah had good news, but it was false good news. It didn't sound all that bad. It was going to be pretty easy, but it wasn't real. This happens today as well on any form of media. Uh, We hear phrases like this. This is your year of breakthrough. Sow that seed and reap a great financial harvest because God has plans to prosper you. And I've heard that year after year, uh, some pastor, some supposed apostle will get on some commercial for some church and say, this is the year of breakthrough at this, at our church. This is the year of revival. This is the year of this. And it's always around January 1st, 2nd, or 3rd. And then they'll say things like, you don't want to miss out on this. So come and be a part of year of breakthrough at such and such church. And then now what they've done is they've set the stage where every single week, you have to experience this level of breakthrough. So now you're going to get a lot of forced experiences because after all, this is the year of breakthrough. We got to have breakthroughs. If nobody's having breakthroughs, something's wrong. And you set the stage and you start preaching and teaching this stuff to all these experiences. Now, can God give us breakthrough? Of course he can. But to definitively declare that this is the year of breakthrough, what was last year? That just was a wash. We don't even need last year. It's fine. So, so often we'll say this, it's good news, but often it's false good news. It's not necessarily what God is or wants to do in that season. I also find it interesting, you only really hear about these type of years of breakthrough or seeds of financial harvest in first world countries. You don't often hear about this in third world countries. You don't hear about this being told to the Christian Syrian refugee who has lost everything, including his family, because he's a follower of Christ. Or the Muslim family that literally kills their child because the child converted to Christ. You don't, you don't hear that family being told, well, yes, but this is the year of breakthrough. This is the year of financial harvest. You don't hear about this or a Christian family who lives in a third world country, whose child dies of malaria because they didn't have a mosquito net. See, but doesn't God want them to prosper? I mean, God wants them to prosper, right? And God's only going to ever prosper. And I don't know about you, but I couldn't imagine walking into a village and telling someone that news. Yes, your child just died of malaria, but God wants to prosper you. You don't hear that because it doesn't actually fit. The reality is we must be guarded against tainting scripture to fit our desires. Rather, we need to lay ourselves bare before the word desiring for it through the spirit to change us and fit us for the king's will. So when you hear this, that there were false prophets that were saying so many things, and he says, don't listen to these dreamers. Don't listen to the diviners. Don't listen to these false prophets. And this is again where, man, so many people will say things like, but the Lord told me. It's kind of like an like a end-all be-all, isn't it? Like during a conversation with somebody and you're like, well, I don't know if that's really what God would do. And they go, sorry, the Lord told me. Okay, okay, I I got nothing. I can't say anything to that, right? And I've heard that so many times over the years. Yeah, but the Lord told me, great, that's not in his word. (laughs) That contradicts scripture. So I don't know who you were talking to, but it wasn't him. And again, it makes us to pause and discern. What does John say? Discern and see if these spirits really are of Christ. Discern and see if this is really the word of God. But so many will just use this phrase. Well, the Lord told me, and it sounds so good. Sounds so good. And I've always been amazed. I've never gone to a fortune teller. I've always kind of wanted to just to see because it's just like that curiosity. And then I'm like, no, I don't really want to deal with that. But I've heard people tell me that, you know, when you hear these fortunes or things like this, it's never, you're not going to get the job. You're not going to get the guy. You're not going to get the girl. You're not going to get the raise. It's always positive things, right? No, you'll meet Mr. Right. You'll meet Mrs. Wright. You'll get the job. You'll get the raise. You'll get the car. You'll get the home. You'll get all this stuff. And people walk around going, wow, I feel so much better. It's all false. None of it's true because they don't really know. Even if they're filled with a demonic possession, they can only predict the future according to what God's word has revealed. Satan is not omniscient. Satan does not know the future beyond what is revealed through scripture. He doesn't know exactly how things are going to play out. He's a predictor of human nature because he's been around since the beginning. So he can pretty well predict what we're going to do because, by the way, we're not all that complex. We're pretty kind of dopey, if you're being honest. He's like, man, I tried this in the garden. It worked on Adam. Guess what? It's still working. Like, they're still falling for this stuff. So it's not that he can predict the future because he is not God. But he knows what the Word of God says. He knows what's happened up to this point. And so he can predict with some level of certainty, certain things that we will fall into or will happen. But a a fortune teller cannot tell you your exact future. It might sound good, but it's false good news. And God says, don't listen to them. He actually says in verse 9, for they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. In my name. Yes, Sandra. That's okay. Okay. Right. Well, so what scripture would they have had in Jeremiah's day? The, 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 the first five books of the Bible, right? And so, and they also have a, the knowledge of who the prophet is. They know that Jeremiah is a prophet. They know other prophets that have come through and prophesied things along those lines. So there is knowledge of at least who to seek out for wisdom. But also another test would be, and I believe this is in, is it in numbers? Um, And I apologize for not knowing that. But um, there are points of reference to how to test uh, a prophet. And it's basically, is their prophecy coming true or is it not? Is it glorifying to God or is it not? So there are levels of ways to test the prophet. Once a prophet gets one prophecy wrong, they are not a prophet. And actually, they're supposed to be killed, right? It's a capital crime. That sounds so harsh to us. I can't believe God would be okay with killing someone. It's a capital crime, and it deserves the death penalty. That's what God's law says. And so there are times where people will, well, what about these prophets that were prophesied things that never happened because they happened they happen in the time of Christ. There was other things those prophets laid forth that did come to be, that did, were true. Um, and so, again, there were ways to test that. But, again, this is why we, in a, in a sense, are blessed beyond understanding because we have the completed word of God. Now, also, one thing to note is that the Spirit of God would take up residence within someone for special reasons, prophet, priest, and king. And so there could be discerning things from the spirit himself that maybe we're not aware of, that there was understanding to some degree where somebody would know that is a prophet and that is not a prophet. But they would test the prophets like we do today. Because even we can use the word of God, but there's many people who will say the right things to some degree in the word of God, but yet still prophesy falsely or make everything a dream or everything a vision, right? So we see this even today. So... Uh, the truth is the Bible, um, does not say we will always get the best outcome in the world's eyes. And in fact, in the world's eyes, we are fools to follow Christ. So just because the Bible says you will prosper, doesn't mean prosper the way that the world interprets the word prosper. So now it brings us to, um, verses 10 through 14, kind of the more popular part of this passage. Verses 10 through 14, and it is just now almost seven o'clock. So we will Move through this relatively quickly and let you guys be dismissed. So verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. What place? Jerusalem, right? So uh, as you were making your observations, that's when you would circle this place. Because if you're doing Bible study, that's a question you should ask. Well, what place? What are we talking about? Babylon? No, we're talking about Jerusalem, bringing them back. Verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Now, other translations translate that ending differently. Uh, Renee, you said you got a Holman, right? How does it translate verse 11? Read that for us, please. Okay, some will actually say literally the word prosper, right? To prosper you, to give you a future and a hope. I like that. Actually, that translation is really, really accurate to what it really is talking about. So here we want to understand that this is God speaking here and again saying, this is my heart, right? And we'll unpack that in just a moment. So verse 12, then shall you call upon me. When's the then? What's that? Yeah, after they're in Jerusalem, after the 70 years, then you will call upon me. Now, I, I do believe there were those in the captivity that called upon the name of the Lord. We know that, right? Because what did Daniel do multiple times during a day that got him in trouble? He prayed. So we know all of the nation of Israel wasn't, you know, just silent, not calling on the Lord. He's speaking specifically about a renewed faith, a renewed time where the nation will begin to call on him in a new way, in a revived way. So then he says, Then you shall call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. So that's I will hear and I will respond to your prayer. You shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your hearts. You can make a note there uh, Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, next to that, with all your heart in verse 13. Again, calling back to that original, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Verse 14. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you. So again, I caused it, I drove you into those lands, okay? And I will bring you again into the place uh, whence I caused you to be carried away captive. So here we see some things, and I'll try to move quickly through this. So we'll see how that goes. Um, So Jeremiah versus the false prophets. Here's the difference. False good news, Jeremiah told the truth, even though it was hard to hear for them, but it was the truth. It was hard to hear, but true, nonetheless, they would be in Babylon for 70 years, not two. Strangers in a strange land, strange language, and cultures for 70 years, they're going to be in captivity. As God revealed that to them, he also reminded them of his character. This is so important. He would not forget them in Babylon. But just as he caused them to go into captivity, he would cause them to return. In the same way he drove them into captivity, he says, I will gather you back into Jerusalem. The real word of God compared to false prophets, verse 11. So the false prophets are saying, it's not going to be that bad. You're only going to be there a short time. You'll be fine. It's all good. It's all good. Verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I have towards you. Sayeth the Lord, thoughts of peace and of not evil to give you an expected end. Why do you think he had to say that in verse 11? What's God trying to get them to realize? That was an awesome group mumble. It was really good. You guys did so good with that. Okay. He attends good for them. He loves them. Which they get? Okay. He's in control of the situation. What might the Israelites be thinking when they hear? These guys are false prophets. They don't know what they're talking about. You're going to go to captivity for 70 years. They might think that's an evil thing. God, you're doing evil against us. And he actually says, no, let me tell you, my heart's desire, my thoughts towards you is not evil. It's actually good. What's the good in the captivity? Yeah, they're going to respond back to where they should have been way back in Deuteronomy 28. Remember the the hinge of the covenant? Do these things, you'll be blessed. Do these things, you'll be cursed. They did the wrong things, received cursing, and God was gracious for a long time. Till the grace and patience of God, it didn't run out, but he decided we're going to change this and now I'm going to bring you to captivity. Still gracious, by the way. What could he have done? He could have just obliterated the whole people group. Nope, I'm done. Start over, right? But he chose to be gracious to them. Now, what's the reality? Consequences from God... For our sin is not evil. That's the heart of this, right? Consequences from God for our sin, as his sons and daughters, is not evil but good. Hebrews, I discipline you as a father disciplines a child. It's not pleasant in the moment of discipline, but the fruit of it is so good. Because it will actually, what? Draw you closer to me, to God, and strengthen the relationship. The greatest aspect of this promise... Written to the Israelites in captivity, not specifically you and I. We have to get this. I get so frustrated when I see this applied to you and I today. This is written specifically to Israelites in captivity. Verse 4 told us that. This is what I'm saying to those who have been carried away into captivity. Everything that follows is to them, not you and I specifically. So is that they were reminded that while the actions of God did not seem to be good, he was not motivated by anger or hatred, but the love of a father. All the way back to Jeremiah chapter 2, right? So uh, those that seek him will find him is another promise that we see here. So God reminds them that he is with them. Verses 12 through 14, he says that those that seek will find him. So what is the good word of verse 10 or the expected end or prospering in verse 11? It's the fact of verses 12 through 14. So you can make a note there. So in verse 10, we see the phrase good word, right? I will visit you and perform my good word towards you. So circle good word. Verse 11, expected end or a hope and a future, as, as I believe the Holman said. And what is that good word? What is that expected end? It's verses 12 through 14, that God will restore the relationship, that God will bring about a strong relationship between him and his people. They are going into captivity due to idol worship and disobedience. But God is a gracious God. And his desire remains the same. That where he is, there we may be also. He is a father that wants his children with him. That's the whole point of this. He is a father that wants his children with him. We see this renewal of faith and relationship with God in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So when you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, you're seeing the return from the captivity and the temple being built and the city wall being rebuilt. And you see what? You see a, a very different people coming out of the captivity than that went into captivity. Right? Where they're dedicated and committed. And you read that all through the book of Ezra, where they were just passionate about the things of God. In all honesty, I believe Jeremiah 29.11 has been reduced to less than what it is, what it really is is when we merely apply it to feel good Christianity. We actually are taking that verse and by thinking we're applying it to us and making it feel so good and all these great things, we're actually reducing it down to mean less than what it really is. Because in the actual context, it's an amazing evidence of God's character. It's an amazing evidence of the goodness of God, not to us specifically, but to what we see applied to the Israelites. When it's a quick verse thrown on a card to give people the impression that God will only ever prosper them, in the way we define prosperity, we're reducing it. We're taking the meaning out of it. It is so much more than that. So, do we throw out the Jeremiah 2911 coffee mug? Do we just chuck it in the trash? Because that's not for us anymore. No, I believe we can see a principle in this verse that we can apply to our understanding of God. He cares for you. He wants to bless and provide for you. However, the good news isn't that life is now easy without struggle. It's that God is our God, our Father, and will never leave you. The blessing will come not like you thought. The sickness may take them home, but he is still good and has a plan. Let's stop defining prosperity and success in God with God as the world defines prosperity and success. It's so much more than that. And so I wanted to kind of walk through this chapter tonight. Again, a very familiar verse, familiar passage, and I wanted to kind of just share the, the maybe the deeperness, deeper aspect to it, um, because it's an it's a powerful passage. It really, really is to see that even in the midst of consequence and discipline, God is still so good and so gracious to say, "I'm doing this for a reason. There's a purpose in this. Yes, it's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be easy, but there's a reason." And we can take great comfort in that, not just from the discipline he brings as a father when we stumble into sin, but just in the world's eyes as we live in a fallen world. Guess what? We live in a fallen nation with fallen leaders. So what do we do? We pray for peace. In the city, we pray for peace in our leadership. We pray for peace in our world. Not the peace that means we overlook sin and compromise for sin, but the peace that says we can agree to disagree. We don't have to be in tension one with another because no human being is your enemy. Right? No human being is your enemy. The ideas might represent things that are against the things of God, but the Bible says our enemy is Satan and the way in which he attacks us. Our flesh is our enemy, but another human being is not. So what do we pray for? We pray for peace. Why? So that we would live in peace. And so I just want to encourage you that tonight. So um, we did go over a little bit, but I do want to open it up. Is there any comments, questions, or thoughts about any of this that we might be able to share before we pray and, and are dismissed? Yes, Renee. Deuteronomy. Okay, I thought Numbers just had it all all mixed up. I was all mixed up. I probably it's all repetitive anyway. It's the same story over and over again. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Right. Wood, and then as their adults to watch them step in and do those consequences. The the heartbreak that you feel as a parent is so minimal to what our father yeah. is feeling he, and and that's what brought it, when you were talking about that it it thought, Yeah. Yeah. We as human parents that truly love our children, we have to be we have to give shelter. Mm-hmm. There has to be consequences. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a great comparison there, that when they're little children, that, yeah, we discipline them for something. But as they are adults, and they're living on their own, in their own, in the real world, if you will, um, now those consequences are for them to discover. And you don't want any of that to happen for your children. But, yeah, it, to me, what this does, what understanding Jeremiah just a little bit better, not that I understand it completely, but a little bit better, is it changes how I view judgment from God. It is so often we think, well, God is so angry. He's always judging and always condemning and always... No, 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 no. We have it all mixed around. No, God is not angry. God is heartbroken because he has to bring judgment. He knows, because by the way, he's a sovereign God. We're not. He knows the only way he's going to get our attention is through the acts that he allows and brings into our lives to bring us back to him. Again, people are like, well, why can't it just be all perfect, rosy, You know, easy roads in life because God knows you would worship yourself, trust in yourself, trust in your prosperity, trust in your success, and deny him. And you would not actually have the fullness of the life that he has for you because you're living shallow. But man, when we submit to him and we see the fullness of the joy and the pleasures that he brings into our lives... Now we're living the real life that he desired us to live. And sometimes that means taking us through times of judgment. And it changes how we view God. The character of God changes. It's not an angry, vindictive, Grecian, you know, lightning bolt throwing God from Zeus or, or I guess it Roman. But or no, he's is Zeus Greek. Yeah. Anyway, throwing down these lightning bolts. That's not our God, Right. He's, he's passionate. He's, he loves us, and he shows compassion to us. And so, again, a, a great reminder of the character of God in this. Anyone else? Anyone else? Any other thoughts, comments? Brene, what was that passage again, or somebody jotted it down? Deuteronomy 13, 1, 2, 4. Okay, Deuteronomy 13, 1, 2, 4, if you want to jot that down. Like testing the prophets, basically. Yeah. No one else? Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll let you guys be dismissed. Obviously, will be praying again for Gene Hudson's family and for travel, for all of that, and uh, just for our church family this week, as there's many things going on, and, and uh, some people have gone through some bouts with sickness. Some are just starting up again. So let's be praying for, during this time of year, that happens quite often, so let's be praying for that. Um, And then just a quick praise again, Um, we had visitors here this morning, return visitors. Uh, It was just a great morning, but uh, let's be praying for the Harvest Hayride, Um, praying for people to come out to that, to be excited to be there, an opportunity to be there here in a couple of weeks, Um, and just pray for visitors to come, for people to come out and just have a great time, and then to be able to connect back into the church. Let's be praying for that as well. Let's go ahead and pray. I want you guys to be dismissed. Father. We thank you, Lord, so much for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for being a father that doesn't just tell us what we want to hear, Lord, but tells us what we need to hear. That you draw us into a deeper relationship with you, Lord, that we would grow. Because ultimately, Lord, when we're trusting in you and we're walking in your, in your ways and in your presence, uh, Lord, that's where the blessings come. That's where the joy is found. That's where the peace is found. But, Lord, I know that as we live in a fallen world with fallen people all around us, It doesn't mean that everything's going to go smoothly. It doesn't mean we're not going to have trials. It doesn't mean at times, even as followers of Christ, even seeking that peace, we're still in this flesh. And there's often times where things will still stress us out and weigh on us, Lord. It doesn't make us a bad Christian. It doesn't make us this horrible person that isn't trusting in you. It's just revealing to us the need that we have for you. That in our flesh, we are weak. And there's often times, Lord, where the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I don't think that just connects to just sin. I, I believe it connects to all areas of life where we know we need to trust, but yet there's still that struggle. So many believers, Lord, want peace, pray for peace, and yet experience such difficult seasons. And I don't have all the answers. I don't know why that is, Lord, but I know that if we're in Christ, that we can run to you. We can, we can pray about it. We can seek wisdom from others, and we can ask for guidance and direction that we might be able to understand maybe why we're on or in this season that you've allowed us to go through. But at the end of the day, Lord, we know that it is in no way, it takes away from your character of goodness and grace and your desire to draw us closer to you. And so, Father, I pray that you just help us to go into this week praising you and worshiping you for your goodness, thanking you for how you provide for us. And, Lord, thank you for being a God that will always that will always desire the best for us. Lord, it may not always be good news to hear, but we know it's comforting because it comes from you, and it will guide us into the deeper joy, the deeper peace that we can experience in Christ. So, Father, again, we thank you for this word and pray that you would glorify your name through us this week as we go into our daily lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for being here tonight. We'll see you Wednesday night at 645. Have a great week.